everyone welcome to another episode of movie mastery it is the podcast where we watch the movies that you tell us to i am your host john with me as always my co-host jeff hello there how are you wonderful everything is wonderful we got a a special little treat we don't really get to do romantic comedies very often on here not a not a highly suggested thing I mean, and, it's uh, probably for the best, because a lot of them are bad. Well, I mean, that's sort of the point of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not entirely, but kind of. I'm, no, I meant for the best for us. Like, I don't think All About ah. Steve is on that list, for example, and I, I count my blessings for that every day, and why did I say that out loud? <laughs> uh, this time around, we watched Kate and Leopold, Good. a romantic comedy that has the fun little twist of involving time travel. Mm-hmm. So it's like the lake house? No. In <laughs> no way is it like the lake house. So it's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3? Uh, almost exactly, actually. <laughs> Pretty much beat for beat. <laughs> yeah, Hugh Jackman gets swapped for some sumo wrestlers. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I tried like crazy to think of any other time travel-based romantic comedy, and I know there are several more, but they aren't coming into my head. I'm trying to think of, there was, what was it there? I know there was one. For some reason, I think the astronaut's wife keeps coming to me, but I don't think that's right. I don't know. Isn't that a horror movie? I don't, I don't know anything. Here's the problem I have <laughs> with the astronaut's wife is I know that there are, that might be a serious one. That's just about a woman who's like worried that her husband's going into space. So it's like a drama. Um, but to me, it, it just slots neatly into a category of like six different horror movies that are. Uh, a woman's husband returns from space and something's wrong with him. Mm, he's got that space crazy. Yeah, or he's infected with with alien plague or whatever. There's like five of those, and I, I always assume that the astronaut's wife is just the name of one. Oh no, the time traveler's wife, however, is ah. one. I knew there was one where it was the something's wife, <laughs> but the only <laughs> movies I know are horror movies, so it's the only thing that came to mind. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's see. When astronaut Spencer Armacost returns to Earth after a mission that nearly cost him his life, uh, he takes a desk job to see Charlie's Theron more often, and, oh, it, it is one of those. It's one of those ones where having gone to space makes a man crazy. Oh, no. And of course, there's also ch- the amazing romantic comedy involving time travel, Hot Tub Time Machine. Oh, Who could forget that? One. Johnny Depp starring in, uh, Astronaut's Waif, by the way. Ugh. Oof. Anyway, this isn't Oof that. This doof. is this is a man from the past. Indeed. This is Hugh Jackman uh, and Meg Ryan starring in a fish out of water fun time story about a dude who manages to get by in the modern day by the fact that he is incredibly good looking. Yeah, that really is pretty much his well, we'll get it to it on the on the other side. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I didn't hate this as much as I usually hate most romantic comedy. Really? I, I, will I say had to that. pause this several times because of how much I was hating it. Oh, I know. As soon as you told me that you really hated this before we started, I was like, huh, are we going to have a difference of opinion? I, I mean, I didn't love this, but I certainly didn't hate it. I would say that my primary concern is entirely wrapped up in Meg Ryan's character. And I don't even think it's her performance. I think it's the writing and her character that I just cannot brook. I I don't want her to find happiness and have a good ending. Well, I mean, she is the sort of prototypical romantic comedy woman of 
Ah, she's a business lady with no time for love until a wacky man that she never thought of came into her life, and now she needs to learn that love's better than being successful. That's a shame that she doesn't have time for love, but she does have time to torment and spy on her ex-boyfriend for no reason, uh, and also uh, drop some some sick transphobia within her first couple of lines. Sweet. Yeah. Hate her. Uh, All right. We are going to actually get into the full, full review where we go all the way in and tell you so much about what is going on with Kate and Leopold after a little music. Won't you join us? time for us to really get our hands dirty and feel up the nitty gritty that is Kate and Leopold, the time traveling romantic comedy, kind of. So can I tell you, I before I started watching this, I was talking to Florence, my girlfriend, about the, my plan to watch it. And she was like, oh, you have to watch a romantic comedy. And so I was like, yeah. And let me go ahead and to you make three predictions about this movie. And my three predictions based on nothing but the knowing the cat, the cast were uh, Meg Ryan is going to be an ad agency person. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's going to e- either uh, Hugh Jackman's going to end up staying in the future. And also Liev Schreiber is definitely some sort of evil villain. And amazingly, I only got one of those, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, it's weird that, you know, Liv Schreiber turned out to be Sabretooth in this movie, <laughs> but you know, well, he makes such a good Sabretooth that, <laughs> it's weird because this movie also starred Tyler Maine. Oddly. And you'd think, oh, it's Tyler like, Maine. In a prominent role, yeah. too. You'd expect him to be Sabretooth. That's the only thing he's known for. And yet here he is as the the uh, titular Leopold, the man from out of the past. Hugh Jackman in, appears in this in an early role as just a bus driver. Yeah, I mean, they make a lot out of him being on it. Mm-hmm. But man, just barely a walk-on cameo. I'd say the weirdest thing about it is that the two of them were in X-Men the year before, and yet they didn't work in a joke or anything. Nothing. <laughs> so weird. Uh, so anyway, it opens in the past. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hugh Jackman, our titular Leopold, is the Duke of Albany, and he's in New York in, what was it, like 1876? 1876, exactly, yes. Fabulous. And, uh... He is watching the construction of one of the many bridges. I forget which one. Uh, Brooklyn. It was the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's ooh, a lot of joking. He's looking around and he's he's uh, drawn some pictures of the bridge and ooh he sees a man with a weird little device and he wants to know what's going on. Yeah, and there's also a dude. that's Liev Schreiber and he's. <laughs> Chuckling at someone saying erection. Yeah, because the guy who's announcing the bridge keeps calling it the mightiest erection in the land. Yes, this erection will stand tall and proud for centuries to come. Mm -hmm. No erection shall ever compare to the erection that I shall place before you, and so on. Indeed. Are you laughing at my erection? Excuse me, sir. I made some sort of boner before you. One of the great (laughs) boners. I do apologize for my boner. I merely wish to let you know of my erection. It's also important to note that uh, Leopold is also 
incredibly hot and desirable in the 1876 era. Obviously, the core thrust of this movie is going to be, oh, this man is so gentlemanly and chivalrous with his pastly ways that every woman can't resist him. But in the 1870s as well... Mostly it's just that he's hot. Yeah, it's just because in the 1870s as well, we get the scene of him sketching the, the, the scene, and there's like eight women just not even watching. They're just watching him instead. No, I mean, he's Hugh Jackman. I get it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But he tries to pursue Leave Schreiber, who immediately gets away. Yes, he immediately leaves Schreiber. Yeah, and uh, Jack, Jackman can't move that fast through crowds because he's a duke, so everywhere he goes, people keep getting in his way and bowing to him, or ladies try to present themselves to him. Yes, and he has to be like, oh, yes, good day, uh, pardon me, instead of just, like, running through them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stay and, in 18... Uh, yeah. yeah. We stay in 1876 for Tur- a while longer, actually. Turns out uh, he is a bored, penniless duke who is here to find a rich wife, and mm-hmm. his uncle wants him to get married to Kristen Shaw. Yeah, so... <laughs> So his uncle's mad because he's never expressed any interest in women in his life, and he's like 32 years old, and that is practically dead when it comes to duking. And so, oh man, he's gonna have to duke it out, <laughs> or else his uncle's just gonna have to drop this wicked duke. Oh man, <laughs> he has to let him stay in his house. He's really putting up his dukes. <laughs> so he's instructed to find a wife this evening, or else his hands will be washed of his nephew entirely. Uh, and yeah, of the pe- the eligible bachelorettes to be attending the party that evening, the most wealthy and eligible of all is the uh, the quite wealthy Miss Tree of Schenectady, uh, played by Kristen Shaw, here sadly reduced to playing the dumpy woman that even extremely friendly and and uh, polite and chivalrous Hugh Jackman goes Ugh, when he gets a good look at. <laughs> I mean, it's rough. It's I mean, it's it's the, luckily it didn't actually make a noise, but it. He's basically, it's like he saw Minerva from the Hugh Friend Roger Rabbit or something, because they do the, the dramatic turnaround reveal where he's like, excuse me, are you the, the uh, eligible Mrs. Tr- Miss Tree? And she turns around and it's Kristen Shaw, and we all know what Kristen Shaw looks like, and you can probably imagine what she looked like 20 years ago. And, and, and it, she's just like, mm-hmm, and he goes, Ugh, very quickly, all right, let's dance. I mean, I can at least attempt to uh, pass that off as being... He's upset that he has, he is being forced to marry and it's just some random woman. Like he is not disgusted by her, but rather by the prospect of I'm going to have to marry this woman. And I'm going to go ahead. And I don't even know. I'm going to go ahead and say that this movie is horrid and that we are presenting her as the ugly option that he is grumpy about. And it made me mad. I mean, (laughs) granted it's, I mean, that's entirely my neutral reaction to having watched the film yesterday. It's not like I've been stewing in it. Ah. I was just like. I was like, oh, damn, you play in Christian Shaw dirty. Because <laughs> the whole the whole thing is they're presenting Leopold as like the ultimate gentleman, uh, where he's just like, oh, no, I have. He is apparently going to be the man who invents the elevator. Yes. And the whole thing with him is he gets to sort of be the best of both worlds because he's got this aristocratic upbringing and he's very gentlemanly and has all these proper manners but in addition he rejects the notion of the aristocracy and merely wants to focus on things that are real and true and noble in life such as invention mm-hmm. and the and betterment of mankind and the death of the hated monarchy indeed so he gets to just sort of play both sides of like yes of course i'm a duke but i don't wish to be yeah, it creates kind of a problem in that 
he is constantly rewarded throughout the movie for being a man out of the time and from the past and very hot. The hot part, set that aside. So there's like, oh, he knows about horse riding and art and education. Oh, such a man. And I'm like, yeah, it's because he's fucking gentry. It's it's not that he's... It's, yeah. it's because he spent his whole life in privilege and never once had to actually work and had a bunch of time for horse riding and combat lessons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, skipping around, there's a point where he's talking to someone about like going into the basement of the Louvre. Yeah. And they're like, oh my gosh, you've been in the basement? And I'm like, yeah, of course he has. He's fucking rich aristocrat. Of course he's been down there. The, the the thing is, to me, the problem with that is every time it tries to present him as the ultimate man of quality, all I'm like is, well, yeah, because he's like the 0.01% of, of, uh, of uh, society in 1870s. If any other person had gone through, he would have either been a roomy old man with like boiled eyes, or he would have been someone with like three teeth left who's like, oh, yep, Scully, it took my leg. But no, you just happen to get the 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 exact confluence of of uh, breeding and good luck in one man. Oh yeah, the out of time I mean, thing has he nothing is to definitely do with it. the pure... lightning strike. Yeah, the lightning in a bottle of people you could get in time. Travel. So they keep trying to sell you on this 1870s thing, and I'm like, that's horseshit. He's just rich. Oh yeah, like he. <laughs> I keep skipping around talking about this, but whatever. I don't give a shit. That's no, fine. Like, there's a point where like he. First has dinner over at Meg Ryan and her brother's place. And he's like, ah, I will have the next course. And, you know, they try to be like, oh, yes, but it's not that he's so rich and fancy. He's just like, oh, but cooking and eating should be a noble art that is comes from your spirit and your soul and expresses life and whatever. Yes. And I'm like, oh, come on. If you're rich, that's absolutely true, douchebag. I'm I'm assuming that most of the peasants in your time period in 1870s ate one course. Oh yeah, I assume if some peasant had gone back in time and was eating there, they would have been like, "Holy shit, what is this? Potatoes and meat? Oh man, yeah. What do you got? Vegetables? <laughs> this is crazy. It's just it's a hard sell, and you know I I, I almost feel for the screenwriters because I'm sure they they thought they were geniuses when they came up with the idea where they're like, oh, women crave men from the Victorian era because they're like romance novels come to life, and I'm like, yeah, a very tiny percentage of them are, and they would be intolerable douchebags. <laughs> uh, yeah, but not this one. No, no, we got lucky here. Uh, notably, they they consistently play him out as the inventor of the elevator, which obviously in real life he is not. Uh, but they do name his butler uh, after the real life inventor of the elevator. I guess it's just a throwaway to keep people like me from getting really mad. Because hmm. they they keep saying uh, they they're like, ah, yes, if you don't go back in time, no one will invent the elevator. And I'm like, bitch, Elisha Otis will, the inventor of the elevator. <laughs> Uh, it's true. Uh, anyway, so he goes to this party and dances with, uh, with Kristen Shaw and he, he sees Schreiber again, who's still taking pictures, chases him. And we have a long chase through the streets of London. Very, uh, uh, John or, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes style that culminates in the not quite complete Brooklyn bridge gantry. Yeah. Although I have to wonder about Schreiber here. Cause like he got caught and was chased after by the uh the duke of albany and he knows he's like oh yeah this is the dude who will invent the elevator or at least invented the counterweight pulley which would go on to be part of the elevator or whatever yeah 
And you'd think you'd go, oh, this guy made me. I cannot just show up at his house and be like, ah, yes, here I am. Yeah, and also, no. Schreiber doesn't even try an excuse when he's just like, and, and I, I must uh, insist on knowing what you are doing with that tiny device in my room, because he's got a little camera. And Schreiber just runs away, and I'm like, just say some words. Just be like, ah, your grace, I am but a humble uh, Wainwright. If you will excuse me, <laughs> you know, just some shit like that. Just anything, but just running. Oh, yeah. Yes, I am. Just be like, uh, so sorry, my lord, looking for tuppence. <laughs> Tis I, sir. Rufus... Although this is New York, so not that. Tis I, sir. Rufus the Wainwright. Ah. <laughs> and then he run. Anyway, they uh, the two of them fall together off the gantry on the Brooklyn Bridge. But lucky for everybody, that's this movie's time travel conceit that random portals in time open up, and if you are smart and sciencey enough, you can know where they are and predict them, and in order to get through them, you have to be traveling at least terminal velocity. Yes, there are cracks in time that, uh, what's his actual character's name? Stuart Besser. Fucking Stuart, that's right. Mm -hmm. Stuart has discovered cracks in time, and he's like, okay, there's no given specific pattern to them you can just sort of kind of predict them like the weather but you have to be going you know gravity fast to get through mm -hmm. and that's it's a neat ish concept they never deal with so what happens when you go through the crack are you still going terminal velocity off of the brooklyn bridge or does it like halt your well, speed and dump you out somewhere else notably do they you appear inside like someone's head and all they can be is like, hey, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. No, we have no idea what happens because you'd assume that the time portal would just dump you out on the other side of the hole in the space adjacent to the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, but instead, it seems like it dumps them into Stewart's house at loud enough for pratfall sounds to occur in nearby apartments, but not enough for them to have died. But, uh, but definitely fast enough well to have knocked... Hugh Jackman unconscious, but not fast enough to have knocked Liev Schreiber unconscious. So it's somewhere in there. Well, I mean, Schreiber pepper sprays Leopold in this. Yes. And so I guess he passes out from too much pepper spray. I'm not really sure. It, it doesn't matter. But, but this is when... Yeah, it's just he has to be unconscious because we have to get... Stuart's ex-girlfriend is Meg Ryan, who lives right below him in this apartment complex, and she has to come up and think that he's getting down and dirty with someone because he's, like, trying to maneuver Hugh Jackman onto a couch. Now, the two of them have broken up, and they've broken up some very few number of months ago, like one or two months previously, that the, uh, Schreiber and, and, well, Stuart and Kate have broken up. Yes, um, it's been about three months. Yes, and Kate is very heartbroken over it. Uh, but she lives near nearby. She lives in the in the unit under him. So she immediately, at hearing pratfall noises happening in his apartment, is like, "Well, obviously, I am still privy to every detail of my ex boyfriend's life. I'll just sneak up there and look in through the windows." Yeah, and at first she's like, "Oh no, he's about to have sex with some lady," and leaves. And I'm just like, "Okay, you should know." At this point, don't do that. Let's resell like, that. Don't just go up to someone's window yeah. and be like, oh. Let's resell that the way the movie sells it, which is that she sees him manhandling someone in the building. Uh, at first, I thought that she was disgusted because she saw another guy. Because all we see in, uh, inside is Liev lifting, lifting up a an obvious dude trouser leg and trying to manipulate it onto the couch. 
so, and her response is Ugh. like she uh, and, and at first I was like, oh God, she's the, it is 2001 late enough for for you to get away with that. It turns out she doesn't think that he's in there banging a dude. She just thinks he's banging a woman in pants. I mean, I I think the joke is supposed to be haha. Victorian clothing for a man looks like lady clothes, am I right? It could be. Except it doesn't at all. Her response is still visceral disgust, though, and not just like, whoops, or how dare he, or anything like that. It's literally, ugh. Like, she actually makes a verbal sound. She goes, oh my god. And I assume that's, oh my god, he's having sex with someone. Not like, I am disgusted by the idea of sex, but just... Oh, we've only been broke up for three months, and here he is banging. I like the idea of, oh my god, he's having sex, how dare he? What about the impropriety? It's it's like you can't even sneak up and spy on people through their fire escapes anymore without seeing them having gross sex. Oh yeah, this entire apartment building has a real problem with personal space, though. Oh yeah. Because, like, she'll go up there for no reason... Fucking Schreiber and Leopold will just come down to their apartment for no, no reason. No one uses the hallways. Some random neighbor kid shows up at one point and is just like, yeah, hey, I'm here now. Yeah, it's it's all fire escape based. They don't seem to use the, well, I mean, granted, they have to. And that's because one of the comedy beats of this movie that is utterly wasted is that having brought Leopold to the future means that all the elevators everywhere in the world have vanished and the entire uh, upshot of that is that everyone thinks Liev Schreiber is crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's not that elevators have vanished. They're still there. They're just not working. The door opens. He walks into an empty shaft and falls. Yeah, and you can see the elevator below him. <laughs> so what happened was by bringing Leopold to the future, elevators still exist and are broken and waters cannot work, but were installed non-functional in every building with multiple floors everywhere. Think of it like Back to the Future in that the elevators are slowly fading. So they're not working properly. And you could say, oh, because without Leopold, like, they didn't invent the proper counterweight pulley and so they suck now. Or just uh, he has X amount of time to get Back to the Future or else everything will be fucked. But we know he goes back to the past and... It's just whatever the fuck. I don't know. They didn't no, think no, about th- it. That's what I'm saying. Because like when he comes through, Meg Ryan is in an elevator, yes, no, no. and it malfunctions well, and has to let her out where it's still like halfway between floors. What I was saying in the first place is that this elevator gag, where Shri- uh, Schreiber falls down an elevator shaft, thus taking him out of most of the rest of the movie, is so contrived, but yet... It seems like it's super important. Like, oh, there's no elevators anymore, um, or, or they're all broken or something. And then it's Liev Schreiber is the only person who suffers any consequences from this ever again. It's not mentioned. No one's ever like, hey, did you notice how every elevator in New York broke at once? That never happens. There is one background gag of the guy who is, I assume, the superintendent of that building on the phone and being like, yeah, I don't care because it's my elevator that's broke down. I don't care how many you got. So I assume that whoever the elevator repair company is, is swamped. And let's, I mean, ultimately, we might as well talk about this because uh, we, we should go back before a little bit, too, in just a second. But in order to get Schreiber more or less out of the film, uh, he falls down an open elevator shaft and breaks a bunch of bones and gets dragged off to a hospital where he's like, yeah, I fell down because the elevator doesn't work. And they're like, you're obviously crazy. No phone calls for you. And we're committing you to a mental hospital, blah, blah, blah. Shit that never happened and never will. It's like he's 
It's like he got left in 1876. Well, I mean, also, as soon as Meg Ryan shows up, he's like, we have to take the guy from 1876 back to the past. So, you know, I think it's less... I fell down a shaft and more, I've been ranting about a man from the past. It doesn't matter how crazy you are when you're in a hospital, you have to be voluntarily committed to a mental institution in 2001. This whole thing where they stick him in one and they're like, and he's like, let me out, I would like to go home, please. And they're like, oh, sir, you're too crazy to go home. Here's some pills. And I'm like, no, fuck you. That's not how the mental health care system works anymore. Well, he could I just mean, leave. I assume that there is some you are a danger to yourself or other clause where they can hold you for a period of time. Maybe. But the movie takes place over several. And here's the other thing about that. No one ever checks on him. His ex-girlfriend seems completely obsessed with him. And he is the only link that that uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Leopold has to. The, his uh, own past and timeline and any hope he has of getting back is wrapped up in this guy and they just leave him in the hospital until he comes home on his own. Oh yeah, no, he gets one visit uh, from Meg where Ryan. he rants and raves about Leopold and, you know, the man from the past and then she's like, ah, uh, you're so crazy and then never talks to him again until he, like, escapes from the hospital. Well, there's a big note that when... When Schreiber's being taken off by the ambulance, a paramedic, or the doorman, I think it was, comes up to Leopold and says, hey, just so you know, they're taking him to Goodman Hospital. He'll be at Goodman Hospital. And I'm like, okay, that's important information, because obviously one of the core issues for Leopold is going to be trying to figure out how to get home, and Schreiber's the guy who knows. And yet, nothing. He never once is like, I should figure out the location of this Goodman Hospital that man spoke of. Yeah. Uh, All I'm saying but is that's because go ahead. You know he has to fawn over Meg Ryan. Yeah, this movie wants to have a time travel premise, but doesn't want to use a time travel premise. It's weird because at least with like Schreiber, you're like, okay, no one's believing. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're Leopold, you're like, but I know this is true. I clearly this is, and. I feel like you would have, especially considering the beginning of the movie is all about how, you know, Leopold super upholds like Bell and Edison and is all about invention and he loves this whole moving forward progress thing. And the second he finds out time travel is possible and someone has figured out that there are cracks in time and can predict them, he's like, oh, that's. Who gives a shit, huh? Uh, anyway, there's this chick I want to bang. My, my, more importantly is that I should probably court the first woman I see. Yes, <laughs> most importantly. Even though, as you know, uh, as has been stated, my my only character trait at this point is that I do not like dating women very much, and I'm waiting to meet the perfect one. Ah, the first woman I lay eyes upon. You shall do. You know, I do want to say one thing for this week mm-hmm. is at least it's a romance between an older woman and a younger man. Yeah, that's fair. Since you almost never get that in these movies. That's true. Yeah, you got a point there. Um, Okay, now I didn't want to skip over some stuff. Obviously, once Kate gets back downstairs from seeing her ex-boyfriend having what she assumes is sex, she needs to mess with him because she is petty and and vicious. So she calls him on the phone and starts demanding stuff that's still in his apartment. And when he's like, I can't talk, I have to go, she uses the remote control to a... Uh, auto-shocking dog collar she has stolen from him to shock his dog until he takes the shock collar off his dog and then shock him when she knows he has the collar. Yes. I am amazed that you were okay with this movie in a movie where someone voluntarily shocks a dog as part of their plan to punish an ex-boyfriend. How can you possibly brook dog violence? Oh, no. Meg Ryan is awful in this. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like, this movie really, really gets by on the charisma of Hugh Jackman. Yes. No, you feel bad for him. Because by the end, obviously, they're going to end up together. And you're like, I don't want you to get stuck with her. She's mean and awful. Also, after all of this goes down, she finally gets Stuart to stay on the phone for a second. And she just sort of rants at him. And she's like, I wasted my best years on you. Because obviously, he's like, look, you never believed in me. I kept telling you I'm some sort of scientist inventor. And you kept doubting me my entire life. I needed to leave you. It was important to me. And she's like, I wasted my best years on you. And he has a, a wicked rejoinder, which is, those were your best. Yeah, now, that's harsh. I was like, ooh, god damn. That's harsh, but it is a harsh response to, I wasted my life on you, you waste. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially given that she's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to call you when I know, or at least assume you have someone over to annoy you about a Palm Pilot, mm-hmm. and then, like hurt your dog, hurt you, and then annoy you some more and say that everything I spent with you was a waste of time. I'm like, yeah, you're kind of awful. Yeah, and of course, th- when he responds with his quick rejoinder, the-, the music drops out, everything pans back, you get this whole like, oh no, he's gone too far moment. And I'm like, they've both gone too far. <laughs> yeah, both of them, not a healthy relationship. It's good they're not in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's... You could get this impression that she is not healthy, and I don't know that she should be. That the solution to her being not healthy is to start dating a duke that shows up in an upstairs apartment on accident. But that is what happens. Yeah. Now let me just state the entirety of this movie, uh, from Leopold showing up that night in uh, Schreiber's bedroom to him going back to the past, which he does, mm-hmm. is about a week. Yeah, it's one week. Because when he gets there. Uh, Stuart's like, hey, uh, you know, it's weird and fucked up that you came with me, but the next opening is going to be in a week on Monday, so you're going to have to go then. And so this entire whirlwind romance thing happens over the course of seven days. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a full Monday to Monday scenario. And I would say at least one or two of those, like... They barely even talk. Yeah, it's pretty much a weekend Because the first flame. day is, is pretty much just him being like, uh, I'm going to talk to your brother and not really do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she has a Monday to Friday job. She's a, a high-powered ad executive for a, a sleazy ad agency um, run by Bradley Whitford, who is playing an extremely smarmy hitting-on-her guy. Yeah, and she's got Natasha Leone as her assistant, who is into romance novels because eh, yeah obviously it's basically this you needed that for the moment when she gets really mad at leopold over something and tries to break up with or break everything off with him and her assistant's like no i've already confirmed your date with him he's from a romance novel you idiot look this is the most amazing apology letter ever and i was like wait a minute all he did was say Hey, sorry, do you want to have dinner with me on the roof? Like, that's literally all that's in that message. That, and I'm like, how is that the most amazing apology letter? I was going to say, if the apology letter is, hey, you want to go on a... Sorry, I, I was I, I was mean to some guy. You want to go on a date with me? That's a terrible apology letter. <laughs> it's got a, oh, it's yeah. got a very selfish core to it. <laughs> Clearly, it is concerned with him. Because he's like, please, let yeah. me make it up to you by giving you dinner at a night. And I'm like, obviously, you also get dinner that night. Unless you're planning to serve as the waiter, your this apology letter is a pickup line. Oh, yeah. Because at one point in the movie, again, I'm not going to care about going blow by blow. No. Uh, Bradley Whitford, the boss, JJ, 
there might be a new VP head of New York stuff. And he's kind of dangling that in front of Meg Ryan's Kate mm -hmm. and takes her out to dinner and is being very inappropriately forward, but not like super excessively, just kind of. He's like trying. Basically, he keeps suggesting that that he's soon going to be moving to a London branch. Uh, that he may give her the position of the new head of the New York branch, and that he she needs to come and visit because, oh, the gardens are so beautiful, and she's so beautiful, and she belongs there and seeing opera, and and uh, she's going to be his special friend. So it's pretty, it's pretty inappropriate. Yeah, but I assume in most of these movies, I assume the... The sleazy boss is like, and if you want that position, I know a position I'd like you to be in. <laughs> so it was actually slightly toned down from what I normally assume. Oh, it's very much toned down from what you'd expect, because there's also a point towards the end where he's been roundly humiliated by uh, by Leopold, uh, been told he's a cad and a serpent, and that he knows nothing of opera or England, and he kind of gets stood up at a dinner date. And then later on in the movie, she's like, hey, are we okay? And he's like, yeah, we're fine. And then he still gives her the promotion at the end. Yeah, he's still like, anyway, I'm going to the London branch. That's where I'll be. You're going to be in charge of the New York one. I haven't, for some reason, become super embittered over this. I'm not going to try and screw you over. You're the best person for the job, so here you go. Yeah, no, there, the, the, he has an arc where he's very smarmy and inappropriate as a boss, but when he's told off for it, he backs off and acts appropriately in the future. He does not move into a revenge arc, which I assume it's just because the movie doesn't have time for him to, but it was nice to see it happen anyway. Yeah, I mean, if it did, I would have assumed it's like, oh, they have Hugh Jackman challenge him to a duel for honor's sake or some shit. Yeah. But no, that doesn't happen, which was nice. Well, there's honestly, what I thought was going to happen is there's a scene towards the end where Leopold has gone home uh, through the time portal, and she's at some dinner where she's going to be announced as the new head honcho of the New York branch. And he keep, and uh, Whitford keeps saying, hey, don't go too far. I Don't powder your nose too long. I need you here when I give this speech. And I was like, oh, he's going to give some sort of horrible, embarrassing speech and then give the job to someone else. Because Yeah, I... I assumed it was still going to go to her because then you don't have drama because she has to make the choice. Because if it's like, ah, fuck you, Kate, you don't get this job. It's going to the fucking man. director Hayward. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to my broski. And, you know, if that had happened, she'd be like, oh, there's nothing for me. I should go to the past. But because she's like. I'm going to give up being the VP of this marketing firm and head everything I've worked for because Hugh Jackman has some nice toned buttocks. And, you know, I get it. I understand. I mean, she's also giving up flush toilets, uh, modern tampons, uh, electric electricity, just sort of in general. She makes a pretty solid choice towards the end here where she's like, yeah, I definitely want to live in the 1870s. Yep. Definitely want to do that. <laughs> doesn't take anything with her which means when they get married at the end there's there's no money because she doesn't have anything in the past she has what she has on her which is a dress not even like a purse full of stuff just her dress yeah. and hugh jackman is apparently in debt so has less than money i don't know what they do well whatever i assume he invents the elevator oh the elevator <laughs> 
I mean, that's got to be the assumption, right? Or just the fact that he spent a week in the future means that now he can be like, I have thought of an idea, a vehicle that can travel through the air at great speeds. It relies on the powers of lifting dynamics. I read a book while I was there. Mm-hmm. They don't, of course, none of that happens because the movie ends on the two of them dancing in a in a, a fancy ball. So it's just a Love Conquers All ending and not a like, well, that was kind of stupid. But I have to assume that ultimately the time crack shows up every Monday. So it's not like they can't just go back to the future whenever they want. Uh, I mean, maybe because that that specific one goes back to the same day, which is a very like. No, it's Groundhog Day the... kind of scenario. Well, yeah, it's like, oh, this crack in time literally goes to this one day no matter when you jump into it it's gonna go to that day but i don't know how it works in reverse uh yeah who knows (laughs) he comes back and he doesn't go back to the previous monday when he comes Mm -hmm. back through the crack (laughs) i don't know whatever also it's kind of sad because he's only got about eight more years to live before he dies from hemophilia, which is what Prince Leopold Duke of Albany did die of eight years later. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what else is going on at the, I mean, we've, we've started jumping around, which, which is fine. Uh, we should just uh, talk about scenes we thought were interesting. I think it's funny. The scene, we talked about the kid earlier. There's a point where Hugh Jackman is told he needs to stay in the apartment by, by, uh, Stuart under all costs, you stay in that apartment. And so he does. And a random child shows up and is just in the apartment hearing the story of a pirate king from him. Oh, yeah. He's just basically telling him Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> yeah. And that's when we introduce a character we haven't barely even mentioned yet. Breckenmeyer is playing uh, Kate's little brother, Charlie. Charlie, who is an actor, but of that kind of failing New York, never going to make it kind of actor. Yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, I, I got back from my acting retreat and... You know, just because you don't have a current job doesn't mean you're not working on your craft. That was interesting. That line, because it's a moment when Kate can't take any more of Leopold's shit. She's uh, she's mad that he's been invited over to dinner by Charlie. uh, And when Leopold keeps talking like he's from the 1870s, which both of them think is just him being a method actor. um, She's like, please just go. Please leave. Please get out of my house. Please leave. Use the fire escape. Don't use the door. Get out of my house. Out of my house, please. Get out of my house. And I was just like, God damn, that's so mean. But um, once he leaves, he Charlie's just like, hey, why would you do that? That guy's just being method. It's fine. He's not. It's not that big of a deal. And she's just like, I fucking don't like actors, Charlie. And it's not like he's got a job right now. And he's like, yeah, having a job doesn't mean you're an actor or not. Being an actor means you're an actor or not. And he's so mad, and she's very taken aback, and I'm like, there's no room in this movie for this D-plot. <laughs> it's sad, because they really try to shoehorn Charlie's acting D-plot in here. Oh, there's so much about Charlie. And, and like, I get that he's supposed to be sort of the bridge between the two of them, of like, ah, uh, I'm, I'm the one who's, like, really going to bat for Leopold here for, you know, Kate's sake and whatnot and he pretty much after like that point we get one scene where we mentioned before where he talks about the louvre he goes to see some girl that he has a crush on this is charlie this is the one i really wanted to talk about because this in this scene charlie is convinced leopold to go out with him uh because he wants leopold to serve as a wingman he has a crush on a woman named patrice and uh, he's gonna, he's gonna take the he's gonna go meet them at a club. And Leopold at first is intolerant of the music and grumpy all about all that. But eventually he sits down to have drinks with the group, 
And uh, Charlie keeps trying to tell stories, but he's terrible at it. He's just too modern of a man. He has no decorum, unlike our 1870s Duke. So at one point, uh, Leopold just kind of goes, ah, yes, similar to the Louvre, which I have been to. And immediately, every woman at the table is just like, the Louvre, Jean-Luc. And I'm just like... I mean, at least with Patrice, they were like, oh, yeah, she has a major in art history. Like that's a thing she's interested yeah, in. Yeah, if she's got a major so in art. So I understand her being I, interested I, I in. I would it. understand it if it was a more obscure reference for her to be fawning over. But he mentioned the most well-known art museum in the world. This would be like him saying Well, he mentioned being in the basement. No, not of for it. not at first. He didn't start with that. He just said it's similar to the Louvre because Charlie's story was like, "Oh, all the good stuff is hidden beneath." And he was like, "Ah, like the Louvre." And that was his full sentence and she's like, "The Louvre." All he had it, it was like if he had just said Ah, yes, like the famous painting, the Mona Lisa. And she'd been like, who knows about that? (laughs) Only the sexiest men know of the Mona Lisa. And it's not just her, it's every woman at the table. Well, I mean, at that point, I have to imagine it's because a sexy man has begun talking instead of Breckenmeyer. (laughs) Hey, leave Breckenmeyer alone. He's got good qualities. (laughs) They're just very densely packed into a tiny little man. Uh, He makes a perfectly functional John Arbuckle. (laughs) Uh, so so this whole thing is just the excuse for Leopold to be like, oh, modern men are clowns and buffoons and you should be honest and true with your feelings. And you should also know about like the flower meanings from Victorian times well, it's for a some weird, reason. It's a weird mix because he gets uh, Patrice's phone number only by telling her that Charlie is interested yet befuddled. And when he gives it to Charlie, Charlie's like, oh, I should call her right now. And so Leopold also, even though he's a man from before the invention of the telephone, knows about the two-day rule. Oh, yeah. He's like, nah, it's fine. You you want to be in control. Like, <laughs> don't just go, hey, do you want to do a thing and not talk to her? Because to him, I assume that would be like, Sending a letter that is like, I like you, do you like me? Yes, no. And knowing that it'll arrive in a month and that the reply response won't come for another month if a war doesn't happen to break out. But he, but here he's like, ah, no, uh. wait for at least two days. At the moment, the ball is in your court. And believe me, my chap, you want the ball in your court. And I'm like, fuck you with the ball in your court shit. <laughs> you're from the 1870s. You're hurt, you're, you're, uh, your biggest plan is to get married at 14 because you're going to die at 22. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, it, uh, it it works. He gets a date with Patrice, does Brecken by more or less, it's not quite Sh- Cyrano de Bergeracking, but but uh, Leopold writes him some notes where he has to say things like, you have a lissom flow and you have a ravishing sense about you and so on, uh, <laughs> which he, he's... I really like, actually, that he writes a whole bunch of stuff for him. He doesn't use it. And then he's like, thanks, I'm going to essentially take the essence of what you have written mm-hmm. and say it myself, and I was like, that's good. No, there's some things that are respectable in this movie. Breckenmeyer, in general, is a good character and a good dude. There's uh, Not until the very end does he actually believe that Leopold is from the past, but he accepts him as a weirdo who talks like a man from the 1870s without question or concern. Oh, yeah. Spends a week with this guy just going like, oh, clearly, he's just in character 24-7, and I have no problem with it. This is my bro. I don't care. Where Kate, on the other hand, has no patience for it whatsoever. Now, I do want to talk briefly about the rooftop dinner, because uh, what happens is she, we already talked about how she ends up at it. She goes to it on, on an 
accidental date with her boss, uh, Breckenmeyer and Leopold show up, crash the date, and make her boss look like an idiot because he doesn't know anything about La Boheme. Um, and at the dinner date, uh, there's a p- there's a pianist. He's prepared a multi course meal. He serves it up on the rooftop, and then they dance. And John, I got to ask you a question that maybe you'll know the answer to. How is he paying for any of this? I had that exact same thought. How does he? Because he pays a violinist. We see him when when Charlie is in a flower shop getting the bouquet for Patrice. Mm-hmm. He looks out the window, and we see Leopold talking to a violinist out there and exchanging what I assume is money for him to come up to the roof that evening to play. And I don't know where he got it. Is he just stealing money from Liev Schreiber's house? It's possible. I mean, he's supposed to, I mean, granted he does start getting paid at a certain point in this film. I have to assume because one of the core conceits of how he winds up in the orbit of Kate and, and ends up falling in love with her is she thinks he's ridiculous, but he does have a very good voice for reading margarine commercials. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, she's like, oh, you're a sexy dude with a British accent. Why don't you come in here and read for this commercial? And indeed, everyone is like, ah, a sexy man. Please put him in front of a camera. And I'm like, yes, obviously I would love I I would buy uh, margarine if Hugh Jackman instructed me to. I think everybody would. If Hugh Jackman told me something had the taste of rich creamery butter, I'd be like, obviously, I'd be like, I believe that Hugh Jackman has the taste of rich creamery butter. (laughs) With a little bit of, I assume, sea salt and leather. Hmm. Uh, but but anyway, so he ends up making this commercial for her, and then their breakup hinges on her, or on him finally tasting margarine and hating it, and being like, I shall not represent a product that tastes of pond scum. And her being like, no, you have to, because this is the way I get a vacation. And he's like, that's, that, wait, you want me to compromise your integrity and my own because you are tired at your job? No, I quit this instanter. Yeah. He's like, I will not you know, sell this terrible nonsense and put my good name to shame by selling lies. And but presumably he has know. already been paid by them. So maybe he has, although that would require him to go and open up a modern bank account, which I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, he doesn't have any paperwork for it. No. I mean, they'd have to have made it out to cash uh-huh. or give him like some kind of, I guess they, I mean. He can't be in that commercial without joining the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> so there's a whole uh, fucking scab <laughs> there's there's a million reasons why this but the whole thing where you, I mean, it's funny because the, your first thought is he can't have a job at selling margarine he he can't fill out a w9 there's no way they're gonna he, he's, he's not in the union there's no way he'll get the job uh, and yet yeah the, they're gonna be like please tell us you know where to send the check and who you are and give us your social security. And it'll be like, I'm sorry, my what? A check, you say? A QUE style check? Well, merely send it to the nearest banker. It is one of those things that the movie's like, don't worry. That this, Please, stop. This movie does not care. No, this movie doesn't have time for this shit. And yet, it, it's irritating because he wins her over by being ultra romantic and, and assembling this, this dinner, which he can't fucking do. He can't buy groceries. He can't use the roof on his building. He can't hire a violinist. He has none of these resources. Basically, they just assume that money floats around a duke like a free cloud. I mean, the one thing I can assume is that all of this came from Charlie. That he was like, here's some money. We're going to go to a flower shop. Maybe you can get some flowers for Kate because I know you want to do this dinner thing. And he spends the money on the violinist. 
And note then he's like, strugg- also, I'm going to need some food from your house. Please note as well that Charlie is a failed struggling actor with no job. Yes. He, crashing but on he his had enough to couch. go to a an actor's retreat. Okay, and so I assume has, it's because no, his sister Kate. makes shit loads of money. Yes, Kate paid for the actor's retreat. She actually mentions that she pays for the actor's retreat. So he's got bubkis. He probably has enough money for two beers. Not a oh. violinist. Which is, but don't worry. It's just don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, but this wit obviously dancing on on her own roof wins Kate over, and now the two of them are in love, and they go on a, a on a a trip. He also proves some value to her by uh, when they're two of them are walking out of a commercial audition, a mugger steals her purse, so he borrows a horse from a carriage and runs down the thief, uh, threatening to bash his brains out with a le- with a leathern strap. Indeed. Uh, and, so she's uh, just like works. a horse riding man. <laughs> uh, I thought it was notable that that everybody else in the entire the only person in town who is not on board with uh, with Leopold is Kate. The only person because when he goes up to this uh, this horse drawn carriage, it just takes the horse off it and then returns it. the The man is not like you stole my horse. That is the most valuable possession in the world. Uh, that was going to come yeah. out of my salary. Instead, he's just like, ah, oh, your boyfriend's pretty good with horses. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, man, please. Uh, although the movie doesn't have to be realistic. It's about time travel. So what do I care? A- anywho. Oh, yeah. What other scenes are there that we really need to talk about? I uh, I do like the way that Stuart gets out of the hospital is that he just pretty talks one of the nurses there until she's like, I believe that you have done time travels and you may go now. That's right. Every woman That's in this not movie, up to you either. Every woman in this movie is so easily seduced. It's like, if I can speak remotely intelligently for about a good 20 seconds, then any woman in this movie is like, you are the perfect man. Although, given this is Schreiber and Jackman, so it's not exactly like they're hard to look at to begin no, with. No, I mean, granted, you, you rarely see Schreiber as the lead in a romantic comedy, but no, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to kick him off a date with me. He's a handsome fellow. I mean, this is Wolverine and Sabretooth we're talking about. Yeah, the perfect tag team, Yeah, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. And obviously this means that Lee F. Schreiber is going to try <laughs> every year. He's going to go back in time and beat the shit out of Hugh Jackman on his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he can only go back to that one day. So every year, and April eighth, every year he shows up and beats the shit out of <laughs> out of Hugh Jackman. But when he goes back to do it again, it's never happened. So it's always like the first time. Oh, that would be wonderful for him. Honestly, I don't. That's I don't think that that particular ritual has made it. Uh, it that's not like a, a super well known thing. But it's a thing in the comics where every year on his birthday, Sabretooth shows up and beats the shit out of Wolverine. Yeah. It's one of my favorite little gimmicks between the two of them. It's great. Yep. Okay, so uh so yeah, that I don't know. What other scenes are there that are worth talking about here? This, oh, we should talk about that one. I'm sorry. I, I got distracted for a second. Yeah, he just there's a random other guy who I swear I've seen that actor before. The 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 guy playing playing a a, a mental patient who's just like shaking chess pieces too much. And then S- yeah, he just seduces a random Spalding nurse. Gray. Sorry? The doctor who commits him is Spalding Gray. Oh, no, I know. I recognize that actor. Uh, what I meant was that I also recognize the actor who was playing the mental patient that he uh, he shoes off before he makes the speech. Ah, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, he woos by just saying, so like, oh, I'm the only man who understands. You see, dogs are colorblind. And, and knowing what I know is like what, what it must be like for a dog to be told of color. I'm... I'm merely the, the... It's a dog seeing a rainbow. 
And he goes back to the other dogs and no one can believe him or understand what he says because they don't even know a point of reference. And she's like, I believe you. I love you. I'm not going to be in this movie anymore, but I'll certainly let you out of this hospital at risk to my own job. Man, I was really hoping that they would end up together. Yeah, right? You, I mean, the- And also, I thought I knew who that was, but I looked up uh, Gretchen the nurse and I was like, nope, no idea who you are. Oh, well. Yeah, there's a couple people I thought I recognized in this movie. I thought I recognized What's-Her-Face from Chasing Amy very briefly as just a random woman who walks out into the hallway of their apartment at one point and then walks away again. Maybe. Had no lines, didn't do anything, was in the movie for five seconds. Uh, also, yeah. a character actor who is in the movie as just one of J.J., the ba- the boss's friends, is Josh Stamberg, who recently was the bad guy in WandaVision. Mm-hmm. Director Hayward. Yeah, he was Director Hayward in WandaVision. It was just like, hey, there he, I guess it's just because this is old stuff, and so he's a journeyman actor who just recently landed a good role. Yeah. Poor Kristen Shaw, same boat. Anyway, uh, the two of them break up over the butter commercial thing, and uh, Liev Schreiber finally gets out of the hospital, gets home, and is like, hey, yeah, look, obviously you need to go home because of this whole elevator shenanigan. You don't belong in this timeline. I feel terrible that you're here, but... This, come with me this Monday and you'll need to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. And that happens off screen. <laughs> uh, we, we go back to his time briefly where he meets with his uncle again because he doesn't go back to a week later in his own time. He goes back to the same day. So we get the same meeting with him and and, and his uh, his uncle where his uncle's like, you need to marry, you idiot. You need money. And he's like, uncle, please spare me the lecture. Just tell me who's rich and I'll go marry them. Oh, yeah. Because before when we saw this scene, he was still you know, being obstinate and had dreams. But now, now that he has met his love and lost her, uh, everything is crushed. And he's like, very well, I shall marry for money for not matters. And uh, goes downstairs and just sort of grabs Kristen Shawl out of the crowd. Is like, yes, very well. Come with me. We will dance. I don't care about this. And of course, she's still like, well, whatever. You're Hugh Jackman. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's like, oh, hey, cool. Great. <laughs> Good. Love it. You don't need to like me. I can do all the liking. <laughs> Look, you don't even need to move around a little. I got this. <laughs> uh, and uh, Kate, meanwhile, goes to her promotion dinner uh, announcement party thing, where for whatever reason, she wanders through a crowd of people. And I assume this is to set her up for being willing to go to 1876. But she she goes to this thing and everyone there is having rich 80s idiot discussions as she walks around between them so one of them's like yeah i just got hair plugs put in but i spiked them with minoxidil so it doesn't look like bad it looks like good and she's like ugh. and then she walks to another group yes i've only i'm not going to buy the new bmw until the value depreciates on the bmw i have now smart thinking other rich person oh it's all about the micro facelifts you don't want to do go too much so i have multiple procedures a year and she's, you know, just her keep consistently going, ugh, ugh, ew. And yet, oh, this these is, fake people. This is the first time that we've seen her have any issue with the other people in her world. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a little late for this story for her to suddenly be like, I hate all these shallow rich people that have been my life. Uh, I hate all these shallow rich people that are also me. Yeah. Uh, and then Schreiber shows up and is like, Hey, look, here's an important thing. When I went to the past and took pictures, you were in them. You belong in the past with him. No one noticed last time. Now that I've seen the pictures and had them developed, you're in the pictures. You belong in the past. You have to go to the past. Which is weird because, you know, she resists it. She's like, I don't want to go to the past. That's crazy. But at this point, it's predetermination. She doesn't have a choice anymore. No, this is a a full 12 monkeys, everything that has happened will happen situation. Except we still do get Leopold going back 
in time and apparently quantum leaping himself because there's not two Leopolds back there. It's not like he goes back in time to that same day and is like, now I am also here as well as the other one that was here. Instead, it's just, oh, I guess I wake up that day as me, but I still have my knowledge? Yes, no, there are not two Leopolds running around, and there are also not two Kates running. It's, uh, it's interesting, because when he's back in the past, he sees Schreiber again, Mm -hmm. doing his little camera thing, but this time he doesn't chase after him, and then I was like, well, if he doesn't chase after you, then he doesn't bring you to the future, and then nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry about it. Just like the every other aspect of this movie, the answer is don't worry about it. Also, Indeed. Don't don't worry about how the uh, the party that they're at is extremely well lit, despite the fact that no building would have been extremely well lit late at night in the 1870s. The, the Americas didn't have, most houses didn't have electricity until the 1910s. Yeah, well, Also, there's a scene in this movie people. where he is... There's a scene in this movie where he is deeply confused by the toilet, invented in the Indeed. Eight, in, in, invented in 1852, and well popularized well, throughout rich people in America by the 1870s. I mean, maybe he was like, "Ooh, this is a a really nice, a nice toilet, fancy, good one." <laughs> wow, look at this! I like the idea that he's just judging it on quality. It's not that he's like, "I've never seen an L- a toilet in my life. I've just never seen one so lovely." Also, this one kind of smells like Liev Schreiber sat here. <laughs> I can detect the hint of my rival Sabretooth. Uh, with my enhanced senses, which I have Obviously. because I'm Wolverine. <laughs> I'll be back in this timeline if I go back to the past, because I'm Wolverine and I'm essentially immortal. <laughs> uh, uh, God damn it. <laughs> and, but yeah, when she's presented with the pictures, she realizes she was in love with Leopold and decides that yes, even they have 23 minutes to get across town and for her to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, which... She does, and Liev Schreiber gets like these this big line where he's like, "Hey, I'm sorry for what I said earlier, and I want you to know it's okay, it's okay." And I'm like, "Come on, you, the two of you don't need a reconciliation at this point. I, it, it's too late in the movie for this. You said something devastating earlier, but now it's too late for you to be doing that." <laughs> Man, it's been a week, and she met the love of her life, which is a time traveling duke. Like, I'm pretty sure she's probably forgotten about it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but she jumps off. A cop shows up, and 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 the, both of them are like, "Wait, no, cop! Don't get involved. Stay away, cop!" And then she jumps, and the cop just wanders off on the phone or on his radio, like, "All right, we got a jumper. Hey, uh, hey, there's there's definitely a jumper. So uh, watch watch the bridge on the northwest side." And I'm like, "Aren't you going to arrest the two guys that look like they were encouraging a woman to commit suicide?" I mean, it didn't look like they were encouraging her. They were certainly trying to stop when that the police officer, officer showed up. They were certainly trying pretty hard to stop that officer from getting anywhere near her. Yeah, but that's because fuck the police, am I right? <laughs> you know who hates it when you say that? The police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but fuck them. I know. That's the whole point. I know. I'm not I'm not saying don't fuck the police. I'm right there with you. But what I'm saying is <laughs> that guy should have arrested them. It's it's another don't worry about it is what it is. On what charge? <laughs> uh, aiding and and recommending suicide. He doesn't know that. All he saw was a woman on a ledge and two guys next to her or saying, two guys it's okay. the, both of them the saying, girder you, from her. Both of them saying it's okay. You can go now. It's okay. Well, no. When the police officer was there, mostly they were just kind of going <gasps> to her almost falling. Ah. 
No, because they are when they turn around to face the police officer, she's still up on the fucking gantry. It's that when they turn around and go like, hey, Kate, she's gone. And they're like, oh, no, we missed seeing her jump. Yeah, they don't say that, though. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying that cops. It's a it's a suspicious situation. It's the judicial system. <laughs> I'm just saying they got See, real lucky. See, I was that cop. I would have assumed they were trying to stop her, and they just saw her, their friend jump off a bridge. Well, then you'd think you'd want to ask them some questions. All I'm saying is it's real lucky that this cop's like, yeah, jumper. All right, I'll be, I, get, I better wander off. Hey, we don't even know, because all we get is him calling in the fact that someone has jumped off the bridge, and then a close-up on Schreiber giving a like, sly smirk, and then we cut to the past again. So we don't know. That cop might have come back and been like, Hey, you two, you gotta come down to the station with me. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking like this now. Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah, you gotta come down to the station, answer a few questions for me. So, me and the boys got a few things we want cleared up. So we might as well get to the end of the movie. <laughs> Oh, now don't be going to be, don't go and be, I'm sorry, I'm not going to try. Don't be mean to those boys. They just commit, they just encouraged a woman to commit suicide. That's important to do here in New York. By the uh, way, is her apartment rent controlled? No, clearly not. <laughs> she is extremely wealthy and I have no idea how Stuart also affords an apartment in that building, given that he makes money as some kind of a crackpot. I assume he makes money as some kind of inventor. They don't they don't mention it, but I, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go ahead and guess that he's wealthy because he invented the Gizmotron. <laughs> he invented Gizmo Duck. <laughs> Please, Gyro Gearloose invented <laughs> Gizmo Duck. <laughs> And it took the heart. That's just what time travel wants you to think. And it took the heart and and uh, old timey dialogue of Fenton Crackshell to to, to uh, bring him to life. <sighs> anyway, she shows up. They get married. Who gives a shit? Yeah, they're just dancing at the end. There's no. There's no. This is the kind of movie where you'd really want to see like an out outro joke about the past, where like it, they're dancing and then it cuts to her going, "Wait, where do I take a shit?" or something like that. That's. <laughs> what, <laughs> And then he's like, in a toilet? Duh, we have toilets. Yeah, but not good ones. I'm I'm accustomed to <laughs> yeah. a certain degree of toilet shit quality. She just goes into the bathroom and we get the exact opposite of the scene where she's like, uh, this isn't up to my standards of toilet. I shall not shit, shit here. No, sir, I shall not. Well, maybe that's how we <laughs> shall find fame and fortune. We shall sculpt uh. it out of out of porcelain, I say. Hmm, porcelain, you say? Hmm, yes, and a handle of fine fake metal. <laughs> a fine, I don't know, tin or some shit. Also, it's only 1876. I am going to beat Duchamp to the punch by like 30 years. <laughs> Actually, I guess it's closer to 50 uh, years. <laughs> I do want to know, like, what kind of shenanigans is Kate going to get up to now? I mean... I assume that she's going to spend the rest of her life being served fancy breakfasts by her gorgeous husband from the 1870s with no interests or plans of any kind forever. Because the uh, thing that wins that her over finally, perfect. the ultimate thing that wins her over is when he makes her toast with mascarpone cheese on it. And she yeah. literally starts crying because someone made her breakfast. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, wow, you, you had, can tell had a rough life. I get it. Yeah. I get it. You've had a very rough life. I'm very sympathetic that you've worked yourself to death to get yourself into this position, and it didn't come with any happiness. Uh, but it, it seems like she's just going to have 
what's she going to do? At 18? She's going to be like, well, I've always wanted to travel. And he's like, excellent. I shall book a steamship to London. In six months, you shall be among the forest gardens of Sussex. And she's like, oh, fuck, I forgot airplanes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Crap. Uh, all right, whatever. Anyway, let's <laughs> let's go ahead and wrap this up. Let's do our bests and worst. Jeff, what was the best thing in this movie for you? I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say that the thing that took me aback was that Schreiber was not an antagonist. Uh, and I appreciated his character being being gentle and friendly towards the end, uh, kind of helping everyone solve their problems, even though he had just gone through a stupid comedy rigmarole where he got stuck in a mental hospital. So I, I'm going to say... I mean, I have to say it's interesting that there was really no antagonist in this. No. No, the closest thing to an antagonist, you, there's a couple people who seem like they're going to be like JJ and, and Schreiber both seem like they may become antagonists in some way. And neither one of them does. Yeah. Um, the closest thing to an antagonist really is Kate because she's awful. True. Um, and I guess maybe the uncle that insists that that uh, <laughs> Leopold marry a woman for money and not for love. Mm. Maybe he's not, he's not a real character. He's, he has two lines. But yeah, I, yeah. I just I like that Leah Schreiber wasn't a villain; that he was just another character who was invested in the well-being of the main character, uh, I, and and I appreciated that. And by a similar token, I appreciate I was really taken aback and appreciative that although um, Bradley Whitford's character was a gross, abusive, smarmy, hitting on his underlings type person, when he was rebuffed for it, he was like, "Okay, I will do better," and he did. Like that was nuts. Yeah. The, the natural trope, I assumed, was he would be like, I shall plot revenge. And instead, he just took it in stride, realized he'd been an, an asshole, and stopped being an asshole. Yep. So, I was like, huh, you don't see that every day. No, what a weird choice. And yet, appreciated. What about you? Uh, I want to say my favorite thing in this movie was the very large dog that Stuart has. Oh, yeah. That is uh, a plot Bart. point in the beginning of the movie and then sort of forgotten about. Yeah. Bart, uh, one assumes there is also a joke scene where um, where Leopold has taken Bart out for a walk and he and Bart takes a dump and he refuses to pick up its poop, even though a police officer is telling him. Yes. Well, I mean, he doesn't. And, and notably, although he is pick it up with. he's the Duke of Albany, he lived in New York in the 1870s. And the, the police officer's like, you need to pick up that dog shit. And he's like, I'm not going to respect the authority of a black woman. What are you crazy? Instead, he's just like, no, I don't want to touch poop. What happens? <laughs> no, of course that's not what happens. Instead, he just says, no, I don't wish to touch poop. Yeah, I'm not going to pick that up. That's unsanitary. Yeah. But yeah, no, I like that <laughs> there was a dog in there. Nothing bad happened to the dog. Nothing particular happened to the dog, honestly. Yeah. The dog just kind of, you know, at one point no. we get a scene of how good is Leopold because he managed to train the dog slightly. Oh, yes. Yeah, and then, that, it, you know, stopped existing in the film. Yeah, just disappears. So does that kid who just shows up to hear a story, to hear Penzance. Oh, yeah. Kid shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, I always watch TV here on, like, Mondays or whatever. And then immediately disappears to never be seen again. What was the other movie we watched recently where there was, like, a little kid who showed up in the main character's house? Oh, uh, the Santa Claus. No, no, um, Fred Claus. Where he just has a random kid who shows up and li and sleeps and lives in his house sometimes. Yeah. It felt like it was going to be that same storyline, just also awkwardly shoved into this because it was super awkwardly shoved into Fred Claus. But instead, it's just nothing. Oh yeah, it's absolutely not. Yeah, so weird. What's the worst thing in this for you? I mean, you know what the worst thing for me in this movie is. It's it's uh, that they portray Kate as just a hateful, vindictive person in the beginning, and yet don't 
they don't really have that as a thing where she needs to learn a lesson about it or anything. It's just that all her whole lesson in this movie is to recognize that boy, oh boy, is this man ever romantic. I mean, it is one of those things where like, oh, there is no comeuppance for Kate. Kate is kind of terrible, but manages to get not only the hunky man to love her, but also gets the promotion, but also gets to turn down the promotion to be an aristocrat in the 1870s. See, I don't know if something necessarily bad needs to happen to her so much as I just want her to progress as a person a little. I want her to realize that she's kind of stuck in a a, a destructive spiral of of, of uh, depression and, and jealousy and spying on her upstairs ex-boyfriend. Uh, and also... It's worthy of note that at no point until the last possible second of the movie does she believe anything that Stuart has ever told her. Uh. So I'm just like, I want her to kind of grow a bit throughout the movie, and that would have been nice. So that, yeah, that's definitely my least favorite thing. It's just that her her character arc goes nowhere and starts awful. And yeah, you're right. She just She's just like, awful person gets rewards. Yeah, pretty much. It's a shame. I don't want it. I don't want it to come out that way. It's. I mean, you, you'd think that maybe uh, Liev Schreiber was a terrible boyfriend or something, but uh, as far as I can tell, he's he's just weird, and she could never come to terms with that. Yeah, it's. I mean, basically, the only thing is he believed that there were tears in reality, and that's about it. Like yeah. that was the big thing. And so when she's like, "I wasted my life on you," she's like, "What she's saying is, at no point was I willing to ever believe you, and yet I continued to date you anyway, assuming at some point you'd give up being a mad scientist." Hmm. It's a weird choice. <laughs> so, what was your least favorite thing? Oh, there's there's a few things that I feel weren't great. Like we've already gone over Kate's character, which is you know. It's like you said, should have grown. Yeah. But I think probably one of my least favorite things is that there's also, it doesn't seem like anyone grows at all. Like Leopold doesn't learn anything. He just was, he started out perfect and remains that way. Yes. Yeah. He mostly just learns about the future and how to operate in it. Pretty much. But even then he's like, ah, but I won't in any way that particularly matters. I'll just occasionally wear a nice turtleneck. And it's not like he, the beginning of the movie starts with him saying like, I shall not never, I shall never make an eternal promise to a woman when at the moment I have yet to feel an instant of affection for a woman. It's not like he learned to be better about that. He just met a woman he was interested in. Yeah. It's, it's weird to have a romantic comedy where it's honestly just, Oh, these two people met and then nothing really changed for them, but they fell in love. Like, in some way, I think, oh, that that's nice. There's no villain. There's no, like, possessive boyfriend that she needs to get over, or she doesn't need to make a choice between two different guys. Like, it's just, yeah, here's dude. He's nice, and you like him, and, and he's into you, and there you go. Yeah. I just, I, I, I wish... I also- any of the characters would have grown at all. Also, I would like to know what he saw in her. I would like to know why he fell in love with Kate, because the thing that we set up in the movie is not that he's uh, like a, secretly asexual. It's not that he's confused. It's that he's never met the right woman, and the, the woman he meets in the future is abrasive, doesn't like him very much, uh, has a million habits he can't possibly stand, and yet he's like, this is the one. So I guess he just had a he didn't know that he wanted women who don't like him. Like I, I, I you know, maybe he liked, I mean, little, that's his fetish. Yeah. He likes a little drama, I, I guess. Yeah. He's just got a humiliation fetish. It's fine. Yeah. 
a, a humiliation fetish where he won't tolerate it for even a second. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, there's there's not. I mean, given that the only thing he ever says is, ah, oh, you're so radiant and beautiful. And he even coaches uh, the brother, Charlie, to be like, ah, oh, yes, don't just tell her about how pretty she is. Tell her she has, like, uh, sacred grace and that she, you know, has eloquent vocabulary or whatever. And he doesn't ever do that. He's just like, yeah, you look real hot, Kate. Real <laughs> India. I hate that he's kind of a pickup artist where he's just like, say the following things and they shall demonstrate value. <laughs> Be sure you engage her away from others. If you can find a horse in order to peacock, <laughs> if she's run with, down a mugger. If she's with another woman, you'll need to disengage that two set. Uh, uh, I kind of anyway, hate that. <laughs> let's, let's go ahead and rate the movie. We're each going to give it a zero to five for a rating out of ten. Jeff. Uh, a one and a half, and almost all of that is for the surprising elements that bucked what I, my expectations. The whole thing where Bradley Whitford does not plot revenge was such a shock that I was that it was a, a nice change of pace from a movie where the bad guy stays bad until they're like secondarily defeated. It was an interesting moment. Um, so it's a one and a half for me for the few things that are kind of shocking or interesting. Everything else is bad. You? Uh, I'm giving it a three. I didn't mind this at all. This might be one of the more tolerable romantic comedies I've ever had to sit through. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a lot of that is on the back of Hugh Jackman, sure, and what sure. a back. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you see the traps on that guy? You could dry laundry on that man. <laughs> Wait, no, I think ah, you scrub- I want to be an old washerwoman on that guy's abs. Scrub laundry. Dry laundry would imply that he's, like, very Long? broad. and you- Yeah. <laughs> Always <laughs> got his arms extended. You see the wingspan on that guy. <laughs> well, he's got those claws that stick out. They add, like, another nine inches. <laughs> He's got something else that sticks out another nine inches. Hey, yeah. Yeah, but only for Sabretooth. <laughs> Movie would have been a four for me if he had ended up with Schreiber at the end. <laughs> if yeah, he had been I like, think... Kate, I have rightly recognized that you are despicable, and instead I shall I, I shall prefer the less fair sex. Good day. I I mean, for me, it's a three because, you know, Jackman's very charming, but honestly, it is a lot of it has to do with there's no standard tropes of like the antagonistic other man there's not a lot of like weird shit going on as far as like she has a best friend who's constantly trying to get her to see other guys or that is herself like oh i'm here to be the well she has an assistant who wants her to be with leopold but not someone that's like oh i'm out here and i'm the like the slutty mirror for you. And I'm always getting with different guys and you should get with that man. Cause I never get a good man, okay. which is in all of these. That's fair. But I was going to say, she definitely has the pushy friend who, who makes her go on a date with a man. Yeah. But it's not, I'm, I'm talking about the friend who's like either trying to get with the guy. Cause she's like, Oh, you don't want him. I'm going to get with him. Or the, I have to be the, the bad person in this. We're like, Oh, you don't have any love and I love too much and all I date is just drunk shitty guys. Right. So all that right. you can have the scene where she's like, you should appreciate this good man. Yeah, someone to end up, I would assume, with Brecken Meyer's character. Although, of course, he's going to end up with Patrice. Yeah. Off no, screen. I think there was a lot of 
things in this that go against the tropes. I mean, obviously there were still plenty of tropey moments in this, but it was interesting enough to watch three. I could watch it. It was fine. Okay, fair enough. I don't agree with your, you go. your addition, but I but I respect it. I will defend to the death your right to rate things a three. <laughs> Plus, I want to find out so, if that's a bingo. That's a bingo. <laughs> uh, four and a half, then, in total for uh, Kate and Leopold. An altogether mediocre movie when you take both of our opinions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty even, a good average for overall. Yeah, four and a half seems fine. It's yeah. not the worst, but boy, it's not great. <laughs> so... Thank you so much for joining us. We do, of course, if you have not had enough of us and our media consumption, mm-hmm. you can go over to patreon.com slash system mastery, support us at the $5 level, and you unlock all of our bonus content. And that includes our new TV mastery, where we are going through the littlest hobo right now, the old 70s and early 80s. Canadian live-action TV show about a hero dog that does absolute nonsense. He does hero dog business all the time. Heavy hero dog business sprinkled <laughs> liberally. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to talk about this episode. This is a particularly cool one. Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of the stranger ones as well. And can't wait to get into it. If you want to join us, like I said, patreon.com slash system mastery. You can join us at the $5 level. There are a bunch of other levels you can join at. You get about 10 episodes a month at that point, extra from what we already put out. You get our monthly episode. You get special privileges in our discord. There's a whole ton of stuff waiting for you. But until next time, you have a good one.